I want you to turn in your Bibles this morning to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians 15, because this is Communion Sunday, I've just made the decision to skip ahead of uh, chapter 14 and go into chapter 15, verses 1 through 11 as our focus this morning. Because it is a passage that deals so wonderfully with the cross work of our Savior and its importance and place of supremacy in our lives. Every morning when I wake up, I have a... uh, A list of priorities. <clears throat> On that list of priorities <clears throat> is the pursuit of a certain beverage <clears throat> that I find to be, uh, well, if I say I, I find it to be necessary, then it's an addiction. So it's not an addiction. So I find it to be enjoyable and helpful. How's that? All right. Um, I find it to be important to effective function. And I find that it produces deep gratitude in my heart when I have my first sip of coffee in the morning. Um, I figured there may be some others that would agree with that. Uh, I, I enjoy it so much that I think that God realized that it would be helpful if there was a Dunkin' Donuts about two blocks away from my house. <laughs> and I never even prayed for that. Honestly, I did not pray for that. But God did that. And so this morning I was able to stop there and prepare myself to go to the office early this morning. The passage of scripture that we're going to look at this morning talks about the priority. We can joke around about different things in our lives that we love and enjoy that give us fulfillment and satisfaction and energy in life and those sorts of things. But the passage of scripture that we look at this morning points to that which is to be central and exalted in everything that we as Christians do. And that is the cross of Christ. I want to begin reading in verse 1 of this passage. Paul says, now brothers, I want to remind you of the gospel that I preached to you. Now, Let's say to yourself, okay, when did Paul preach this gospel? And the word gospel, euangelion, just means good news. And when he says preached, it's just a verbal form, euangelizomai. I preach the, the gospel to you. I, I proclaim to you the proclamation. I evangelized you with the evangel. That's, that's the way this breaks out in the original language. When did Paul do that? If you go back to Acts chapter 18, you'll find that Paul did that for a year and a half in the city of Corinth. He says, now, brothers, I want to remind you of the gospel. And here's the implication. I'm doing it again. I did it again and again and again, and I'm doing it again now as I write to you and bring correction into their life. He, after all that he has said about practical issues and about spiritual issues, 1 through 11 and then 12 through 14, all of those issues, after all of that, Paul now says, I want to put this in the context of the gospel as it relates to a question about the resurrection from the dead. And so Paul is now kind of zeroing in on the most important central truth that affects the totality of the life of every born-again believer. I want to remind you, he says, the first thought I want to just impress upon your thinking this morning is the centrality 
and importance of the gospel. And I want to do it in answering this question. Why does Paul rehearse the gospel over and over? Why does it come up in his letters on a repetitive and regular basis? Why here does he say, I want to remind you of the gospel that I preached to you? I think the first thing that we need to understand is this. Because to Paul, the gospel was central. It was the most important thing that they could discuss because the ramifications of the gospel affect every relationship in every area of our lives. There is no part of your life that is not affected by the gospel. It is not simply something that you came to in the past, made a decision about, and now we're moving on with your life. It is to cover the entirety of our life. It is to be central and exalted throughout all of our life. So it's why on Sundays as we sing, you should hear a theme that is somewhat regularly repeated and that is the theme of the gospel of christ because we can't even come in praise apart from the gospel of christ so we remind ourselves of it i want you to notice how paul does this verse one he says i want to remind you of the gospel and the word remind simply means to draw your attention to again and we could say it this way again and again and again and again okay why do we celebrate anniversaries birthdays and holidays kind of depends on your perspective right and your age and birthdays are celebrated for birthday presents right Eli Eli had a birthday last week he turned six years old and uh, he got a whole pile of presents and I'll tell you what there were a lot of friends there who like Eli a lot Eli was distracted because had presents why do we do all those things Sandy said it correctly to help us to remember. You know why? Because we tend to forget very important things. Anniversaries and holidays are great opportunities for us to remember the value and preciousness of the sacrifice of others. Anniversaries are a great time for us to remember the value and preciousness of our mate. What drew us to them originally? That's why we call it a birthday. That's why we call it an anniversary. It takes us back to the beginning of our relationship with that person and helps us to remember why. And so the Apostle Paul, in this passage of Scripture, he says, I just want to remind you of the gospel that I preached to you while I was with you. Why? Because simply, we need to be reminded. Secondly, because it is the most important message that we can share. I want you to notice how he says this in verse 2. He says, by this gospel, you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preach to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. Verse 3 then, 4, what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. Okay, the word that's used here in the Greek is a word that will, will kind of echo in your mind in an English word. It's priotes. Okay, we get the word priority. It is the, the gospel. The cross work of Christ is the first priority for the church. It is the first priority for every Christian to engage with and to re-engage with and to rehearse and rehearse over and over the blessed truth that sets us free from the consequences of our sin. If you go back to chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, Paul can show that this was his normal pattern. He says, when I came to you, brothers, I did not come with eloquence or superior wisdom as I proclaim to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except 
Jesus Christ and him crucified. I wanted to know nothing among you except Christ and him crucified. And then what would he do? He would tweak out all the ramifications of the cross and of the gospel and of forgiveness into the areas of every relationship. So when he deals with pride, he ends by saying the cross of Christ should kill pride. It should produce humility. When he talked about marriage, he ends up back at the cross. Why? Because the cross demonstrates what true forgiveness is about. It's the kind of forgiveness that should affect and infect every relationship that we have. The gospel of Christ is to be the number one priority for every Christian. C.J. Mahaney puts it this way in his book, The Cross-Centered Life. He says, only one thing can be of first importance to each of us. And only the gospel should be of first importance. Only one thing can be of first importance to each of us. And only the gospel should be that which is of greatest importance. Can I ask you a question this morning? What captures your attention? As you leave church on Sunday morning and are reminded of truths in song and in word about the cross of Christ and about the work of God, as you move through your week, what tends to capture your attention? What do you worry about? What's on your mind more than it should be? Okay, a couple things, if I throw out some ideas. One thing that could be on our mind is our relationships, our marriage, our children. Another thing could be on our minds is our work responsibilities. Will we have a job next week? We can also focus our attention on finances and be driven to the point of distraction from that which is central and first in terms of importance. And as Paul writes to the church in Corinth, as he begins to bring this letter to a conclusion, he says, I just want to remind you of the gospel which is of greatest importance. There's a question that naturally comes to mind as we say that. Why should the gospel, the good news of Christ, be of first importance? Okay, that's the logical question. We're going to make a big issue out of the gospel and say that it should be what is the top priority in our lives. Why is that the case? Okay, and I think Paul explains that as he goes on into these verses. Second half of verse 3. I received what I received, I passed on to you. That is, I did not invent this message. This message was given to me, and I have a responsibility to pass it on to others, as does, I believe, every believer. I received it, and now I am passing it on, and here's the message. And I believe this is why the gospel should be the main thing in our lives. Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures. He was buried. He was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And then he goes into a list of various proofs for the resurrection. Why should the gospel be the main thing in the life of every born-again believer? The first reason, and I'm just going to list the three things that he says here. The first reason is this. Christ died for our sins. Folks, look. It's one thing to say that Christ died. It is another thing to say Christ died for our sins. We live in a world that tends to have an ornamental or sentimental view of the cross of Christ. The death of Christ is a fascinating thing. It's a good thing. 
but for many it is distant. It is not a personal thing. Okay, and as Paul writes here, he is boiling it down to what we could call the bare bones or essentials of the gospel. The first essential of the gospel that he focuses our attention on is that Christ died for our sins, which raises another question. What is the cause of Christ's death? Okay, just bang, bang, bang that question around in your head for a second. What is the cause of Christ's death? I mean, at one level, we can certainly say it was the will of the Father, Isaiah 53, to crush him. But there's a reason that the Father does that. The cause of Christ's death on Calvary's cross is my sin. That moves it out of the sentimental that moves it out of the realm of that which is shallow and ornamental in terms of the cross of Christ and brings it into a very personal and powerful position in my life. When I stand before the cross and see what Jesus Christ accomplished for me, I am drawn to realize that it was my sin that nailed him there. Christ died for our sins. The cause of the death of Christ, according to Peter, Later on in 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 24 is my sin. Listen to what, how Peter puts this. Peter says, he himself bore our sins. Okay, and this is key. He bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sin and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Okay, the cause of the death of Jesus Christ was the sins of Tim Hoff. You can put your name in that sentence. The cause for the death of Christ was your rebellion against God's will. It was Christ bearing our sin in his body. And that brings up a powerful picture. It's the picture of substitution. Someone who stands in our place takes the hit that we deserve. Let me just say it in a couple different ways. It is to satisfy the Father's just and holy wrath against sinners. Okay, the death of Christ satisfies the just and holy wrath of God against my sin. Okay, now take it one step further. On the cross, the Father counted the Son guilty of our sins. Okay, it's important that you understand that. On the cross, the Father counted the Son guilty of our sins. Okay, that is the essence or heart of the gospel. Christ died, folks, for a purpose. And the purpose was to take my sin and my rebellion upon himself and then to go to that cross and bear the consequence of my sin. Should bring to mind a verse, Romans 6, 23. For the wages of sin is death. Okay, what I deserve for my rebellion against God is separation from him. What is it that Jesus Christ bore on the cross? He bore my sin and he bore its consequence. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 21 says, He made him to become sin for us who knew no sin that we might become the righteousness of God in him. 
That is one of the most glorious gospel-centered verses in all of Scripture. He made him to become sin for us. He became the substitute for Tim Hoff. He took my place on Calvary's cross, bore the full consequence of my sin, and the cross then was the site of a glorious transaction between the Father and the Son. It is the mighty demonstration or expression of God's love for sinners. Because on the cross, Jesus Christ became sin. That is, a, that is a truth that mystifies me. That is a truth that blinds me. It, it is so strong, this substitutionary nature of Christ's work on the cross, so strongly does he bear my sin that towards the end of the crucifixion, he cries out to the Father in light of the consequence of my sin, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What did he experience? He experienced the consequence of my sin, which was separation from his Father. Why? Because simply, he loves you and I. On the cross, he bore the full weight, the full price, the full consequence. And in doing that, demonstrated that his death for our sins is in fact the clearest expression of the Father's love. Now, here's what happens. When you share the gospel with people, I can just about guarantee you the most difficult aspect of sharing the gospel is communicating to people that they are rebels who have turned against God, right? That's like the, the hardest part to bring up with people is their true condition apart from God. It's, it's easy to talk about, hey, God loves you and what he's done for you, but it's another thing to say that your sin is the cause of this. But God's love is the cause of this. His justice is the cause of this. Your sin has a consequence. He loves you so much that he sent his son to take your place. Christ, this is how Paul boils it down. Christ died for our sins. That tells me that the, the cause of the death of Jesus Christ is my personal rebellion against God. And I want you to notice just one of the little phrase that Paul attaches on the end. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. Okay, that is in accordance with the Old Testament prophecies. You go back to Isaiah chapter 53 and begin to read. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. By his wounds we are healed. He bore the consequence and price of our sin on Calvary's cross. So, the first truth about the gospel that Paul wants to express to us is Christ died for your sins. In his body, he bore the consequence. Second truth that he goes to, and we'll talk about this more in a few weeks. Christ was buried. And, and there, there's part of this that you can say, why does Paul make such a deal out of the fact that Christ was buried? Why is that important? Okay, and I think the answer to the question is this. The burial of Christ, in a sense, authenticates the reality of his death. It's not trivial and insignificant detail. It is critical to the storyline of the gospel. Christ died and was buried, and when he was buried, it clearly demonstrated that his cross work was, in fact, completed. So strong is the response of the disciples to the burial of Christ that they begin to despair. Some of them go back to their old way of life. They are so deeply troubled by the fact that Christ has died and that he has been buried. 
But the last part of the gospel that Paul points to is this. He says, Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried and he was raised on the third day. And I love this, according to the scriptures. Now, let me ask you this question. Did the disciples believe that Jesus Christ would raise from the dead on the third day? Did they find that a believable assertion? When Jesus talked about his death, talked about the fact that he would be buried and raised again on the third day, did the disciples say, hey, we can't wait to see that happen? That resurrection day would be a glorious day. Were they naive, quick to receive that kind of statement? I think the answer is you study through scriptures, clearly no. Prior to his death, when Jesus talked about his being crucified and buried and risen again, Peter jumps in front of him and says, Lord, over my dead body. He did not want to accept the nature of the resurrection. He couldn't couldn't fathom it. He wasn't some naive person in the first century who lived in a very different world than you and I did, less scientific. They were intelligent people just like us. They had less technology than we have, but it wasn't like when people talked about resurrection that they somehow found it more believable than you and I would today. Their response to it was, we doubt it. After the resurrection, when people started to say that they had seen the risen Christ, what was the response of the disciples? Thomas, this is very strong. If I don't put my finger in his side and put my finger into the wounds in his hands, I will not believe. It was truly unbelievable for them. And it is the only plausible explanation for the explosive growth of the church of Christ beginning in the first century till the time that you and I live in today. The only plausible explanation for the growth of the body of Christ for the work of God in this world is in fact the resurrection of Christ. Why does Paul then bring up this topic of resurrection? Well, notice, the resurrection he ties back into the Old Testament. He says, this was according to the scriptures. Psalm 16 says, you will not abandon my soul to the grave or let your Holy One undergo decay. Paul could tie the promise of the resurrection and the fact of the resurrection back to the Old Testament scriptures. The only reason that Paul would list these facts about him being buried and about him being raised from the dead again is that it in fact had truly happened. There was in fact an empty tomb that believers of the first century could go and investigate. And Paul goes on to say he appeared to Peter, to James, to 500 others, to all the apostles. Some of them are still alive. What is Paul saying? If you desire to go and check out the validity of the resurrection account. If you want to do the interrogation of first-hand witnesses, that can be done. That can be done. Folks, the gospel that Paul says is central is that Christ died for our sins, that he was buried, that he raised again on the third day. A Christian is someone who believes this simple message about Jesus Christ. A Christian is not someone who says they're a Christian. A Christian who is someone who has come to a place of personal faith and repentance in the cross work of Christ. They have to realize that he died for their sins, that there is a consequence that they deserve, that Christ in his grace and love bore for them. They have to realize that Jesus Christ 
paid the price, that he was put in a grave, and then on the third day, the father raised him to life again. Look at chapter 15, verse 17. Paul's emphasis on this becomes very clear. He says, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is empty. You are still in your sins. Those who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only in this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all men. What is Paul saying? He said, if Christ is raised from the dead, we believe the lie. We've been duped. Okay, and what he does, what does he do? He raises clear evidence. There is an empty tomb in Jerusalem. There are many people who saw the resurrected Christ. And if you want to go check it out and verify it in the first century time period, you could do that. Paul was utterly convinced in a life-changing way of the effects of the gospel in his life. So it became of central importance to him. Secondly, he talks about the clarity and simplicity. Folks, as you look at this, this is glorious truth. For anyone who has come here this morning who knows in their heart that they fall short of what God expects of them. They know it in their marriage. They know it in their workplace. They know it in their relationships. They they know it in their thinking that their mind isn't what God wants it to be. There is hope for you, my friend, this morning. Christ died for your sins. He was buried, that is, he truly died. And on the third day, he was raised again. And the Father who raised him from the dead has the power to raise you from the deadness of sin and to bring you into a place of newness of life by the power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead. He wants to invade your life with good news that is life-changing and that brings everlasting consequences. This is the message that must be believed to be a Christian and to be saved. It is the glorious gospel of Christ that is to be of central importance in everything that we as Christians do. The third thought I want to close with this morning is this, the effects of the gospel. How does it change us? How does it change us? And I think I want to do that just by looking at the three people who are mentioned in verses 5 through verse 11. Three people. After the resurrection... The word of God tells us that Jesus appeared to Peter. Okay? Jesus appeared to Peter. Who was Peter? Peter was the denier. He was the denier. He who was the one who on the eve of the crucifixion of Christ had boldly said that he would never deny him and that he would be faithful to the end. But what did Peter end up becoming? He ends up becoming what he thought he never would be. He becomes the denier. And when you go to Mark chapter 16, you might want to write this down. Mark 16 and verse 7. After the resurrection, the angels are interacting with some of the women that are there at the tomb. And they, they, the angels, make this very direct statement to the women. They say, go and tell the disciples and Peter. Okay? You have to love this. God, in his grace, affects Peter's life through the gospel by specifically seeking him with an angelic word about the resurrection of Christ. Why? How did Peter feel after his failure? The Gospel of Luke says that after he denied Christ a third time, he went out and wept bitterly. What did he feel like? He felt like a failure. He felt like a wretched sinner who was undeserving of God's love and grace through Christ. That's what he felt like. 
And then later, who is it that seeks out a personal audience with Peter? Jesus Christ, the resurrected and risen Lord, who paid the price for his sin, goes and communicates to him a message, and the message is this, Peter, continue to follow me, continue to believe, and you are in the process of being forgiven of all of your sins. I want you to look back at verse 2 of, of 1 Corinthians 15. Notice how Paul says this. He says, by this gospel you are saved. And if you go back in the original language, it's in the present tense. Which is fascinating because often the word saved is in the kind of particular tense. It's an event that happens at one time with a lasting consequence. Here he says, this gospel is continuing to save you. And I thought to myself, how could that be? How could salvation be a past de facto event that we are justified by the grace of God and yet we are continually being saved as we believe? Here's the verse that comes to mind, 1 John chapter 1 and verse 9. In light of the fact that every Christian falls short and sins, messes up, acts like Peter at times, what does 1 John 1 9 say? It says, if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive and forgive and forgive and forgive and forgive. Folks, one of the glorious effects of the gospel is that it will produce a deep degree of gratitude in your heart and it will allow you to realize that Jesus is for you a rescue from all of your sin. Peter failed the Savior due to fear. He was restored by the Savior and would never forget it. He would never forget it. And his life is transformed. You go into the book of Acts. Who is the bold proclaimer of the gospel? It's Peter. It's Peter whose life has been radically transformed. <clears throat> what is our temptation and failure? Our temptation and failure is, is one of two things. At one level, we tend to ask the question, well, why should I even try? Right? I thought God had dealt with this issue in my life, and it's back again and again and again. And our tendency in failure is ultimately to say, you know what, it's just not worth trying. It's not worth trying. There's another tendency we have that's more devastating. And it's to try to work ourselves back into the love of God by what we do. In other words, I can't ask for God's forgiveness anymore because it's, it just hurts. And what do we do? We tend to start to want to take performance. As Sinclair Ferguson says, we tend to smuggle performance into the work of grace. I want to tell you something, folks. That will be devastating because your performance will never measure up. See, the only way back into God's favor is the way that Peter comes back in. He acknowledges his sin. And he receives the forgiveness that Christ provides over and over and over again. By this work of Christ and believing in it, you are being saved. Not only in the past and in the future is your life covered by the blood of Christ completely, but in the present, when you sin, the blood of Christ continually washes away your sin. And that is a glorious truth. And I, I think it's fascinating that as Peter writes, he says specifically, he appeared to the twelve and to Peter. How? In person. And then you find a little bit later, verse 7, it says, Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Why mention the name of James? Well, who is this James? If you go into the book of James, you go back into the gospel of Mark, you, uh, John, and Luke, you'll find that he is the physical brother of Christ. He's a half-brother to Jesus. Well, you go back to, I believe it's Mark chapter, <clears throat> Mark chapter 3, 
when the family of Jesus hears about his public encounters, they think he's out of his mind. John chapter 7, his brothers were unbelieving. They grew up with him. They made mud pies with him. They lived with him. And he's claiming and doing all of these things. They will not believe. But after the resurrection, Jesus goes to James, the doubter, and the one who had mocked him. And demonstrates his glorious authority through his resurrection. And James is changed. Becomes a writer of one of the beautiful, beautiful little letters in the New Testament. What is it? It's evidence of God's grace and effect. And then Paul. Verse 8, look what he says. And last of all. But Paul just, he enumerates this list of all the different people that saw the resurrected Christ. And then he says, and then last of all, he appeared to me. Okay, now you, if you know a little bit of Paul's history, this is a stunning and astonishing revelation. Acts chapter 9 tells us that Paul, let me just, I'll just read this passage for you real quickly. Acts chapter 9, verses 1 and 2, tells you, talking about Saul prior to his becoming Paul. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. Okay, so here's a man who is murderously hateful of anyone that follows Jesus. You go back into chapter 7 and you find that he stands by at the martyrdom of Stephen, the first martyr of the early church. He went to the high priest and asked for letters to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, which was a new way to talk about Christians, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. That is, rip them out of their hometown because of their faith in Christ and bring them to Jerusalem and accuse them, and some of them he planned to kill. It becomes very clear. While Paul is traveling from Jerusalem to Damascus with letters that give him authority to carry out this fiendish work, he encounters Christ. Now, folks, if you want a picture of sovereign grace, a picture of God's calling and selecting grace, this is it. You can't tell me that Paul was beginning to move in the right direction. He wasn't. He was filled with murderous hatred. God arrested him purely by grace, completely apart from Saul. He found him in his sin, and he convinced him of the glory of the cross and of his own sinfulness. And he rescued Paul's life. And last verse 80 says, of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. Someone who was born in an amazing set of circumstances. That's the picture. Someone who needed help and support right at the time of their birth. Paul is saying, that was me. That was me. The effects of the gospel. You see him in Peter. You see him in James the doubter. You see him in Paul the persecutor. What does the gospel do? What are its effects? The gospel always produces life change. Verses 9 and 10. Paul says, I am the least of the apostles and do not even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, that is free, undeserved favor, by the grace of God, I am what I am. What is Paul doing? He is taking no credit for the transformation that has taken place in his life. And if you go on a little bit further in the verses, what does he say? He says, I worked harder than all the apostles. Why? Because Paul was so deeply grateful for the grace of God that had been displayed to him personally through the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Paul is 
a man who is stunned and amazed at the grace of God. What, does the, what are the effects of the gospel? And I'll just list these four for you. The effects of the gospel. It always produces life change. It always comes into an individual's life with some kind of effect. Paul could say he was the greatest sinner. He became the least of the saints. An unexpected encounter with Christ produced in Paul's life a radical, transformational life change. What else does it do? It also produces profound and amazing gratitude. Notice how Paul says this. Verse 9, I am the least of the apostles. I do not even deserve to be called an apostle. Isn't that amazing? God saw me in my sin, saved me from my sin, selected me to be an apostle, and all Paul can say is, I will never get over this. I will never get over the fact that God saved me and rescued me from my sin and transformed my life. Folks, would you cultivate that kind of a heart? If you were saved younger in life, will you remember what God has saved you from by His grace? What He has protected you from? All the bad decisions that you could have made apart from His grace and the indwelling of His Spirit. Would you just take time to thank Him for what He has done? The gospel will always produce a profound and deep gratitude because the cross is the wellspring of Christian joy and it prompts the deepest amazement and passion for Christ. That's why Paul says the cross should be central. Another effect of the cross is that it produces staying power when you're tested. When you go through a trial that may cause you to want to throw in the towel, when you go through a failure in your personal life that may cause you to want to say, is it even worth it? Trials will strengthen the grip of saving faith in your life. Look at verse 2 with me, if you would, real quickly. He says, by this gospel, or even look at first second half of verse 1. He says, this is the gospel I preached to you, which you received, on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel, you are saved if you hold firmly to the word that I have preached unto you. See, evidence of conversion is what? Staying power. These people stood firm, and that standing firm in the midst of their trials was evidence that God's grace had invaded and affected their life. Trials will strengthen in your life the grip of saving faith. One writer put it this way. He said, you may be tempted to quit, but will find that you can not. Okay, and I believe that is one of the strongest evidences of genuine conversion. It's not that you're not tempted to quit. It's not that trials don't cause you to doubt the goodness of God at times in your life. But when you are tempted to quit, you will find that you are unable to why? Because you have been converted by the grace of God. The Spirit of God is living within you and is speaking assurance into your life. So you may be tempted, you may think about, but you will find that you are unable. That's why Paul says in verse 2, in this you are standing firm as you hold on to your faith in Christ to the very end. Continuance in Christ is the mark of true saving faith. It is the proof, I believe, of real belief that he or she, as a Christian, continues to hold fast to the cross of Christ. 
the effect of the cross, lastly, is that it cleanses us from all of our sin. And it is the beginning. When you come to faith in Christ, it is the beginning of a lifelong rescue that God works through the blood of His Son in your life. So that every time you fail, go to God and say, God, I I confess. He cleanses you again, cleanses you again. By this faith, you are being saved as you believe. Okay, folks, sometimes what happens is life beats us up. Our failures beat us up. Our failures cause us to think that there can't be hope for us. Or this morning, maybe you're here and you've never trusted Christ and you're thinking, it's too late in my life. I've done too many things. I I have messed up in too many ways. I can guarantee you this. Your tendency is to think if you were doing better, you would have a better chance of experiencing God's salvation. Not true. The Apostle Paul becomes the classic example to one who was undeserving. He experienced the grace of God. At the end of verse 11, Paul says this. Whether then it was I or they, meaning the other, other people that had come and preached the gospel of Christ in Corinth, whether it was I or they, this is what we preach. Christ died, Christ buried, Christ risen. Paul says, this is what we preach, and this is what you believed. And it's why, verse 1, he could address them as brothers in Christ, as parts of the family of God. Friend, this morning, here's the question. Here's the question. We've looked at the gospel of Christ. We've seen that it is to be central in our lives. The question for you this morning is, have you believed? Notice what I'm not asking you. I'm not asking you, did you at some time in the past pray a prayer? I'm asking you, have you believed? Have you rested your eternal destiny upon the cross work of Christ alone for your salvation? Have you gone to him and said, Lord Jesus, you died for my sin? Have you had that experience of being born from above? Paul was never the same. His life became filled with gratitude and joy. A lot of troubles, but joy and gratitude. If you've never trusted Christ, can I just, can I ask you to just burn your eyes into verse 11? By this you are saved if you believe. And if you've never trusted him, today would be a great day for you to bow your head in the quietness where you're sitting and just say, Lord Jesus, today I believe you died for my sin. I believe you were buried and I believe you raised from the dead on the third day. This, my friend, is the gospel. It is the love of God expressed through the work of Jesus Christ. And it is for your sin and every Christian here, it is for your joy, your eternal, everlasting joy that Christ has invaded this earth, paid the price, died, buried, raised again, exalted at the Father's right hand. He loves you. And he wants you to keep the cross central in your life. For every Christian, this is the question. Is the gospel of first importance to you? Do you rehearse it? Do you sing it? Do you pray it? Do you share it? Do you thank God for it every day? Cultivate a heart that is centered on the gospel and then take it out into the world around you for the glory of God and he will affect change in the life of those around you.
Let's bow our heads together in prayer as we go into our communion service this morning.